Good evening. Uh, my name is Richard Beck. Um, and my name is not Mark Hooper. Yeah, very confused. Uh, yeah, confuse me. And he, on the app, Mark Hooper, whoever he is, is responsible for all my sessions this week. So on the app. Yeah, on the app, but in the program or online, it's got my name. So if you're here for Mark, Mark Cooper, Cooper, he's not here. Yeah, you can walk out. We don't think. We don't know who he is. He could be in the room. He right might now. be. <laughs> Prepared so to give a class. Yeah, he might be. Yeah, I mean, if you're confused, wonder what Mark Cooper's thinking right now, though. But yeah, Richard Beck and Mark Love. And we haven't done this in a while. Last couple. Was it two years ago? Was the last time we did this? Mm -hmm. We used to do a thing at late night called, uh, what was it? A theologian and a psychologist walk into a dot, dot, dot. So we left that vague. Because uh, we never knew when the program was being set what we would want to talk about. And I think that's the thing. Richard and I have been having an ongoing conversation about a lot of things for, I don't know what, 15 years now? Yeah, a long time. Mm -hmm. So this will be kind of another installment in that. So, uh, but this year, instead of doing that open-ended, we kind of knew that we wanted to talk about the Holy Spirit because of stuff that Mark had been writing a lot about, stuff I had been thinking about, and so and it was obviously the theme of lectureship. So we will talk to you about the Holy Spirit, the Church of Christ, and our kind of journey um, uh, with that. So I want to start, right? Mm -hmm. So just background. I grew up in a, the, uh, a little Church of Christ in Erie, Pennsylvania, and we were part of the kind of, I guess you could describe it as the word-only tradition. Does that make sense to some people? Mm -hmm. If you don't know the Church of Christ background, but the word-only viewpoint was the Holy Spirit only works through the Word. That, that if the Holy Spirit was going to do anything to us, it would be through the study of Scripture. And then any activity outside of that was, had ceased. There's a name for that, isn't there? Cessationist. Okay. So yeah. Marx is theologian. You're going to make me say that. Cessational. It, it ceased to exist. <laughs> when the Bible was, you know, the, when the, I always had heard the interpretation without Corinthians, like when the perfect comes, all these gifts, when the perfect, and the perfect was, you know, the perfect word of God. And once, once that came, there was no need for miraculous charismatic signs to somehow give, um, how many of you grew up in a tradition that articulated that? Okay. Wow. Um, Mark's stories look, this is, I, now, it was never like overtly, when I grew up in Church of Christ, it wasn't overtly taught that way. I do remember, this is my story, and then I'll hand it over to Mark. Um, I remember I was contemplating going into the ministry, and so I was kind of tagging along with our evangelist um, uh, when he would do Bible studies with people. And I remember this vividly, going along with him many weeks, week after week, we would go this couple's house. It was actually a trailer. We go to their trailer and have Bible study. And we were working through, you know, the kind of sequential movements you make. Um, and every week it was like he goes like, like I've been studying the scripture and what you guys are telling me lines up, and we're like agreeing on everything. And we're agreeing on even baptism by immersion. He's like he had come to that on his own. So I'm like, wow, this is. 
easiest. <laughs> um, but but uh, during during moments when we just visited, he would often um, talk about the, how the Holy Spirit had given him promptings. Mm -hmm. um, the Holy Spirit had uh, you know indicated this and came to be true, and so he just felt. He just talked about the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit actually kind of active and leading and giving insight and praising God for those kinds of things. And I remember vividly, it was going to be, and we got through everything. Like, so I want to be clear. He had agreed on everything, even baptism by immersion for the forgiveness of sins. And we had finished that study, and we were in agreement. And I remember leaving that day going, well, then we're done here. Like, that's it. We're you know, and and I remember my my uh, minister saying, "I'm really worried about next week." And I go, "What's next week?" He goes, "We're gonna we're gonna talk about the Holy Spirit," and I just don't know if this. I think this is gonna be the point where we part ways. And and uh, I was like, that that seemed like a weird thing that that would be the next thing we would talk about. Anyway, but we came back and. I sat there as a teenage kid watching the evangelist try to convince this man that these promptings he was having were not promptings. All that, all that stuff has ceased. He disagreed. And we left. And he was never baptized or evangelized. Like that was the moment that and I realized walking away go, going that apparently to be a member of the Church of Christ that was a that was a breaking point you had to believe, at least in my little church you had to believe that that stuff did not happen and uh, we walked away that night and I don't know what happened after that, but anyway that's that's the tradition I grew up in yeah, I grew up in a very different kind of setting, listened to my dad preach my whole life and even though uh, I'm multi-generation Church of Christ, my dad had advanced theological training, and I remember my pre-baptismal uh, little catechism that my mom and dad took me through, talked about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, how important that was, and... Um, I vividly remember five years in a row from the time I was about 12 to 17. My dad was asked to preach at the National Black Lectures. And uh, they were pretty word only, a lot of them were. And um, they asked dad to preach on the Holy Spirit five years in a row. And I went with him, the year was in Louisville, Kentucky. And he preached on the Valley of Dry Bones, Ezekiel. And the place went nuts. And my dad sweated through everything he was wearing. It was a very dramatic moment for me. And so um, I, I always had... Um, kind of a, the idea that the Spirit was involved in my life. I remember 
having a sensation when I was baptized that I associated with the coming of the Holy <coughs> Spirit in my life. Um, it, but functionally, uh, Richard and I didn't end up in uh, very dramatically different places. Um, he grew up in a tradition that kind of denied any kind of direct indwelling. Uh, I, you know, heard different, but practically speaking, on the ground, how we actually imagined the Holy Spirit being a daily presence in our life, I was probably as clueless as you were. You know, it was a theory, an idea to me, but not necessarily a reality to me. Um, I, I'm, I find it a little ironic that we're having a lectureship with this as theme, and we're mostly listening to lectures about it. <laughs> and I don't, I don't think we have to convince you I don't think we're there anymore, that the Holy Spirit is real, is God, is given to us, um, poured out on us. Uh, we believe that, right? But we're still not beyond kind of um, an intellectual acknowledgement of that to a more daily practice that makes it tangible that we can name and that. And part of that's because it's, um, I think, been taken away from us for, uh, by other traditions. We know we don't mean that, but we don't have anything affirmative, affirmative to say on the other side. So I think um, whether you grew up word only or in a more generous um, kind of tradition like I did, functionally, we landed in the same place, right? So, um, um, and this is my continual ongoing story, right? I'm still living into this, trying to get more of it, get my arms around it more, uh, have it be a greater part of my life. Part of, because I'm Church of Christ, and because I'm pretty, I'm pretty good at being Church of Christ, you know, I've got like five college degrees because in the Church of Christ, if you think about it, you've done it, right? So a lot of uh, kind of the growth and kind of openness for me began there began by thinking through things, began by solving problems that I needed to have solved so that I could kind of move on. And the Holy Spirit became very important in kind of each of those, some of those intellectual issues for me. I'm a missiologist. Uh, my PhD is in missiology. And a big problem in mission is the legacy 
of colonial and imperial mission by Western countries in less advanced, even there I said that, in second and third world um, nations, right? So a big part of that is figuring out how in the world did we get there and what would solve that? And to make a long story short, part of the problem is that we tended to see the church on the sending side, God sends, Son, sends, Spirit sends church into the world. And so we're on the same side of the arrows as God, and we're pointed at the world. So the world just becomes the object of our concern. But if you have a Holy Spirit, the Spirit's already in the world. The Spirit is before you are there. And the Spirit is already at work. And so how I thought about the Holy Spirit and missions became increasingly important to me. I began then to read Pentecostal theologians like Miroslav Volf and Amos Young and people like that. And it was stunning to me how many of kind of the intractable theological problems that particularly Protestants get hung up on are solvable if you lead with the Holy Spirit. You know, religious pluralism looks different if you lead with the Holy Spirit. Um, um, issues of justice look different if you lead with the Holy Spirit. So this then became kind of part of my journey that uh, made me more open to what I'll call a, a kind of a charismatic theology. And I like the word charismatic better than the word Pentecostal. Mm -hmm. The word Pentecostal tends to get associated with groups and movements, whereas charismatic is a broader term. And if you're filled with spirit, you're charismatic, you know, as far as I'm concerned, regardless of what gifts you have or how that manifests in your life anyway. By kind of getting after some of these intellectual problems, I began to um, be more open to um, a greater experience of the Holy Spirit. You. Yeah, I think my, the reason why I've gotten increasingly interested in this conversation is, is, some, is some is biographical and some, and some are intellectual theological. Um, Here's a, here's a funny diagnosis. Like when when the Church of Christ started like sensing. This is my this is my interesting litmus test. When did the Church of Christ start getting a sense that the Holy Spirit was? And I think it, in my church was when we stopped having haunted houses. <laughs> Do you remember how many of you guys had churches that had haunted houses? Like le legit haunted houses. And I think mainly we had haunted houses because we're like, none of that's real. You know, like, like it's, it's just, it was just, it's all pretend. But then there was, there, there became this creeping sense that we're like, boys, oh, I, 
<laughs> like maybe maybe some of this is real. Uh, and we should not. So you know, now it's a trunk or treat. That's all right. So, uh, no haunted house. Nothing spooky, but we can hand out candy. Um, so so yeah, the, I've been I'm in, interested in this this enchantment, right? That's real. That there's a spiritual world out there, and disenchanted. One of the reasons I wrote, if, if some of you guys have read Reviving Old Scratch, and Reviving Old Scratch was kind of a book I described to people as like a, uh, it's like a, the devil for doubters book. And, I, and one of the reasons I wrote it is because I was a kind of a disenchanted, let me explain that terminology. Enchanted um, is a sociological term, Charles Taylor, maybe, or others. 500 years ago, the, the world was very filled with occult forces, magic, and demons, and angels, and witches, and very enchanted world. But with the rise of modernity, and the enlightenment, and secularism, um, faith is harder. And so those things are more relegated to the superstitious, and, and uh, we become more skeptical and doubting. The rise of agnosticism and atheism, particularly amongst our young people, and so we've been moving on a 500-year journey to the disenchantment, which is, I think is kind of unfortunate. The Church of Christ is kind of <laughs> finally regaining its enchanted theology at a time when it's becoming harder and harder to believe for a lot of young people in a lot of this stuff, and, and I think that's an interesting thing. Um, but as I, I was a disenchanted, I'm, I'm saying all this to say because I was kind of a disenchanted person. I kind of grew up in a word-only church. I'm kind of an intellectual person. I'm a social scientist. So I'm kind of skeptical. So I have a lot of doubts about some things. But when I went out to the prison, as I described, um, the prison ministry I do, I bumped into a very charismatic spirituality. And it's kind of one of the ironies I've discovered about um, our, our theology is that this kind of social justice theology pushes you to the margins of society, right? That's what you should do as a good liberal person, is stand in solidarity with the margins. Um, but once you, as we all know, when you get on the margins of society or global Christianity, that's a very enchanted spirituality there. And so it's interesting how kind of disenchanted social justice warriors move to the margin of society and then they find themselves kind of off-footed by the enchanted spirituality they, they bump into. Um, and so I've been really interested, so that's a part of why I got really interested in this conversation is, is just that, the contrast there. So one, one of the things, uh, I think, and your churches are this way too, I think one of the least talked about divides in your church is the enchanted, disenchanted divide. The people in your church, they're going like, I don't know if prayer works. I don't... Uh, and, and any statement about Holy Spirit giving them insights or better parking spaces or, <laughs> or intuitions about a person, they minimize all that. So they find themselves very skeptical and very disenchanted. <coughs> And in the same pews are people that our God is doing this, the Spirit is moving here. Um, so at my little faith community on Wednesday nights that worships, and this is kind of a church that reaches out to very poor people, and you know, they tell miracle stories all the time. But then when I get into my Sunday school class, there's lots of PhD professors from ACU, they would be kind of embarrassed to tell a miracle story in there. You know, that's a little too enchanted for their spirituality. And and those two churches in my church often don't talk to each other very well. Yeah. They don't 
They find the, they find the spirituality of the group completely foreign and alien. Have you not seen this in your church? <laughs> you know, people that actually think God answers prayer. People are like, I don't know what prayer does, but it's therapeutic for me. You know, it doesn't change God, but it changes me. So we, it's just a form of self-help. And uh, so I'm curious for the conversation because I'd like to bridge that divide in our churches. Um, the trouble is when you try to bridge the divide is that there doesn't seem to be a lot of, com it does seem like the conversation is either it's awkward and I don't know what to do with it, or it's, it's, it tilts to a kind of a, a charismatic, um, I don't want to step on anybody's toes, but some, sometimes the charismatic aspect can get a little flaky sometimes as well, and it lacks a robust theology. And, and, and so because we're either we just kind of let the charismatic people in our church go, like, well, you know Mary. You know, she's just, you know, the spirit's everywhere. And you just kind of let them go, and they do their thing. Do you guys have people like this in your church? Like, just completely spirit-led, and God, you know, and you're like, well, I'm not sure about all that, but, you know, you do you. And so you, you have that and the awkward silence, and there's really nothing in the middle. And so what Mark and I are interested in doing tonight is kind of talk about, like, what can settle, settle in the middle. It is not to deny Mary's experiences, and it's not to say that, Believing in, in miracles isn't hard. I'm not designing either poles of those. Those people are in your church. and But there, is there more to the conversation than those two things? And there really hasn't been a lot in our faith tradition, I think, that's un, unpacked a lot of that kind of stuff. Um, Let me go ahead and jump in. Yeah. Um, so, an enchanted world becoming disenchanted. Um, follows along the same timeline of moving from a society that defines itself more by family and community and clan to a society where the individual's everything, right? So think about that then in terms of the Holy Spirit. So if you've got a disenchanted world the only place where enchantment can show up is in the life of an individual, right? Does that make sense? So it's no longer that things are happening between us so much as they're happening inside of us. And um, I think modern Pentecostalism has been a little hyper-individualistic. Uh, and that's why um, Mary doesn't have a very robust community of discourse about what the Spirit may be doing. And so people who claim the Spirit are often the most idiosyncratic kind of people in our communities. We don't think about the Spirit indwelling the community and working between people and among people. And um, so I think along with uh, the disenchantment of the world, all that left for Christians was kind of the enchantment of the individual. And um, there you're, you're in a binary. It's either, you know, a one or a zero. So um, anyway. And, no, 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 and I think, no, I was going to say some other things, but I also think a part of that, too, is, is that enchantment, at least in a Pentecostal frame, often gets associated with emotionalism. 
And so that means the only way you can feel the spirit is literally generate. And that, that puts pressure on your worship ministers and your praise teams to create a spirit-filled experience. And they're, so they're, every week they're trying to create that. And you feel the pressure to kind of... And so um, my, my preacher, Jonathan Stormont, tells a story from Rich Mullins where... A guy came up to you know Rich Mullins, uh, you know. So uh, our God is an awesome God. Let's sing it. <laughs> anyway, uh, Rich Mullins, a guy came up to me and said, "Rich, the Spirit was moving tonight." And Rich said, it "Wasn't the Spirit? That was the kick drum." Yeah. <laughs> that was a true quote. It's a great quote. Um, and so I do think there's something about you know about that. And I worship with very charismatic people at Freedom Fellowship. Like they. They, they dance around the aisles. We have prayer flags, which are, you don't probably have prayer flags at your churches, do you? No. I don't like them. They're dangerous. Um, <laughs> I literally told one of our elders that we need to cut about a foot <coughs> off the prayer flag because Karen is dangerous. Like, she just... She's just, you know, she's just, we need a really short, get a short, anyway. And by the way, I found, I wrote about this recently, I'm off script, um, I'm off script, but, but, but in Leviticus, there are wave offerings. You guys know that in Leviticus? There are, like, literally people wave offerings before that. I'm just saying it's biblical. <laughs> I don't wave a flag. Because I don't like invading people's personal space. But to get to, back to my notes, the other the other reason why I'm interested in this conversation from the intellectual purposes are that the, the my increasing interest in, in the relationship between the spirit and, and salvation. So I was in my small group a couple weeks ago, and uh, somebody asked the question, um, I don't think I know what the gospel is anymore. Like, I used to know what the gospel is. The gospel was we're all sinners but Jesus died. And, and it seems like it's that that's a message that we're not really, it just doesn't sell really well. It, it seems like a really hard move to convince people first in a very disenchanted, skeptical age that they are sinners and God's really upset with them. It just doesn't, you gotta convince them of some really bad news first. And then if you convince them of that, then you can get to the good news. So the leading edge of the gospel is always negative first. You don't, you're, not, you're unaware that you're a sinner, and so I have to convince you of that. And that's an awkward lunch conversation. <laughs> um, and, and so I remember sitting, sitting we were a small group, saying, well, what's the opening move nowadays? Um, if it's not guilt, forgiveness. And I suggested Romans 8, um, verse 11 that this is the good news. That the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit that dwells in you. That's the good news. The frame is now not guilt, forgiveness, but death or life. And that the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit, then, then the gospel is purely good news. 
it is God's. But but you need a you need a theology of the Holy Spirit that can that can get at that. It's not a feeling. It's it is a it's, it's a new new in the language of Scripture a new creation. I mean, you are when you're given the Spirit, you are a different kind of being. Um, and I think without that. Without a strong theology of the Spirit, and I'll turn this back over to you, what ends up happening, I think, in a Christianity is it, 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 it moralizes if you're a conservative. Right? Being a good Christian is being a Christian is being a good person. And if you're a liberal, it means you know, uh, being, being a good person in the sense that you're working for the right social justice causes. So our, our faith reduces to morality and politics and doing all those things well. But if, but if being Christian is about being a new creature, a new creation, one that people, like when you come up the baptismal waters, like you're different. You're like, it's hard to, I, I don't have a good metaphor for this, but it's kind of like, you know, this is a really bad metaphor. It's like how Spider-Man, you know how he gets bit by a radioactive spider and it changes his DNA from the inside out? That's the biblical imagination for what happens in baptism. You you are you are uh, reworked into a different kind of creation, and that is that's that's what it means to be in the spirit. It's not being excited; it's being a um, a creature being made into the image of God. Yeah. Um, Let me uh, kind of give one more of those. Okay. Um, I've been doing a lot of work in Luke and Acts, and the death of Jesus in Luke is not primarily a sacrifice for sin. Jesus aligns his death over and over in Luke with the death of the prophets who come before him. And so uh, he, at one point, critiques this evil generation uh, and the sins of the, uh, the killing of the prophets from Abel to Zechariah will be visited upon this generation. Jesus' death then pulls back the curtain on the injustice of the, the way of maintaining peace in the world through religiously sanctioned violence, right? Jesus' death pulls back the curtain on that because now they've put to death God's son. So, uh, brothers, what can we do, right, in Acts 2? And uh, later, Peter will, Luke says, exhorts them um, continually have saved themselves from this corrupt generation, the very word used in Luke earlier, right? The key to that, though, so the death of Jesus pulls back the curtain, shows us that the world's way of keeping control and power is through religiously sanctioned violence, and the offer of the gospel is to do peace a different way. And that way is through the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. 
So spirit, it's the Holy Spirit in Acts gets poured out on people who put Jesus to death. And later, the Holy Spirit gets poured out on Gentiles, those who are unclean, right? So the whole system now has been changed. It's been unmasked, and the Spirit of God now can move among the people of God to create a community that makes peace some other way, right? And you've got to have the Holy Spirit for that, according to Luke-Acts. So, um, so, Richard and I both have found a lot of really intellectually satisfying ways to think about the Holy Spirit, which has opened up a lot of terrain. But we still have the question, how does this hit the ground in our own lives, right? So, um, I'll start. Yeah, right. So, um, I've said this in other settings. If you've heard it before, good, you'll get to hear it again. Um, but I decided that I would have kind of three commitments in my life related to the Holy Spirit. The first is to receive whatever God intends for me. And the, the key there is not to be afraid. Um, that's commitment number one. And so in my morning prayer times, I will pray for the Spirit of God. Number two is that, this is the hard one, I will um, accept the testimony of others at face value for as long as I can. So that now I'm going to make sure that I'm open to stories that might expand my understandings of the Spirit's involvement in my own life. The third commitment is to expand the bandwidth of what counts as a story of the Holy Spirit. And this is, to me, a really important one. So I talked before about the idea that um, um, in a kind of highly individualized Western culture, which has become increasingly disenchanted, then the arena of the spirit is only kind of the individual. But in reading people like Jürgen Moldman and Mikael Velker, who you should never read unless you're forced to, <laughs> um, I've learned so much about kind of the way the Spirit creates new communities that a typical work of the Spirit is to create solidarity where there was disruption, to create 
wholeness where there was division. And so the idea that spirit's not just in me or just in you, but might be doing something between us has made me far more attentive to what might be going on in any given moment related to the Spirit of God. Can I, can I jump in with that? So like, yeah. is an illustration of that, like what happens in Acts 10 with the Spirit falling on the Gentiles. The Spirit mm -hmm. eradicates. So an activity of the Spirit isn't just a feeling I have. The Spirit creates a new social reality where a previous barrier is broken down by falling on the Gentiles. And after that, exactly. a new humanity emerges. Or even in Acts 2, you know, you've got people of different languages. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the experience of the Spirit creates a reality among them that didn't exist before. Um, so... I am constantly now thinking, what's the Spirit doing in this room right now among us? And what would it take to name that, right? Um, I'm convinced of uh, kind of two things um, related to congregations um, that some congregations have no idea that spirits doing anything communally within the congregation and other congregations can tell you too easily what that is right and both are you know um, I think dangerous and thin and bad theology um, uh, you don't take a vote and determine what the Spirit is doing, right? It takes, like, Cornelia, Peter has this vision, right? In Acts 10, that's a pretty dramatic experience, right? And at the end of the vision, Luke says he's bewildered as to what this could possibly mean. And then he goes to Cornelius' house, and stuff happens there, and he hears Cornelius' story, and, and he then says, it's absolutely clear to me now that God wants me to show no partiality, right? But a few chapters later, he has to tell the story again, and now things that weren't clear to him at Cornelius' house become clear. God chose me first to go to the Gentiles, and this is in keeping with what the Lord told us, that um, John baptized with water, I will baptize with fire and the Holy Spirit. But these things aren't reported in those first two stories. What I'm saying is that very seldom, even though the Spirit is at work in everything around us, very seldom is the meaning of the Spirit's work immediately available to us in terms of meaning. Right? It's only as we work it out and tell stories and compare each other's lives and see what other surprising things might happen that we begin to see a picture emerge. 
right? So, I don't know how that's related to what point I'm on. So, we're broadening bandwidth, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? Um, uh, so, so, I mean, you're, so you would be suggesting that when we think about the Spirit, we start thinking about it being more, more communing, more socially, rather mm -hmm. than just like what the Spirit is prompting. Because usually you hear people talk about the Spirit, like God's giving me a word, God, you know, God, you know but, but you're saying when we're seeing something happen in a community uh, in a surprising way, barriers are coming down, that would be the, the creative work of the Spirit. Yeah. Part of what I'm saying. And it might be perplexing. Yeah, no. Yeah. Oh, I like that. That's good. That's amazing. Yeah. You know, that's good. Because yeah. when you try and discern spirits, I mean, test the spirits, that would be a quite. Because otherwise, I, I do think, I think what happens is if it's just individuals and we're trying to discern the spirit or test the spirit, then it puts me in like, you, you tell me this, what the spirit has done to you, and I have to, I'm either skeptical or I'm not, you know, but I, I somehow have to pass judgment on your private experience. But if the spirit is working socially, we can discern that communally because we have an evidence in front of us that, that oh, this is a surprising group of people that are like, in the world. This would not happen, yeah. you know. And if um, how unlikely that this is, these are our people. I think is an easier way to discern that doesn't put us in the contested relationships about saying what the spirit does or does not do um, by focusing on individuals. Yeah, I'm just summarizing. I'm just reflecting yeah, that one. Very well. Um, Are you a psychologist? Or yeah, something? yeah. I'll be listening to. You. I've been I've been listening to you talk for a long time, yeah, so yeah. it's a habit. Of, uh, so. Mark has been my theological coach for many years. But um, when when I think about the Holy Spirit, the, the part that that I wish I had done in um, better job of doing, you know book I wrote called The Slavery of Death. Um, in that book, I talk about how um, uh, what David Kelsey calls cultivating an eccentric identity. And I like the term eccentric because it's geometrical, but it's also kind of about violating norms. It's an unusual identity. It's not common, but, it's, but eccentric also in the sense that um, I, I, as I described it to my students just this week, so there's kind of really two ways to kind of live your life. And one way to live your life is to, um, words of uh, psychologist Ernest Becker, uh, you uh, participate in a hero system. You, your culture, your workplace, your family you know, gives you a way to achieve a significant, meaningful life, and you perform in that hero system. You collect your accolades, you, you know, preachers, you, other preachers in the room, you know, you guys have your own hero system, it's the size of your church, yeah. you know, the slot of your speaking gig, something like, you know, there's a way to, there's a way to perform in that and be more or less successful, and I'm a college professor, and I have my own little, that's all, it's its own other little world, I can write a book, can, and then, but then if you write a book, you're not done, right, because, you know, there's the status of the book and how well it sells, like, you really can't, you can't escape it, you're just, you're stuck either chronically winning or losing, you know, in some, in some metric, right? And if you're winning, great, you know, good for you. But even the winners are competitive, and they're often anxious and driven, um, and they're often fretful, you know, that somebody younger and better and smarter and more charismatic is going to come up behind them, you know, and 
you know, so even then you're watching the rearview mirror. Mm -hmm. and a lot of us, so it feels, it feels like that, that drive to succeed, the comparative competitiveness that we're always watching. But some of us, though, we're, we're on the losing side here. You know, we, we line up all the metrics and it, it, it comes across as low self-esteem or shame or insecurity. But either way, you're, you're trapped in this kind of neurotic game in your head. Um, and you have all felt that, right? You have your own way of evaluating whether or not you're doing great or, or failing. And, um, and I said that's one way to achieve in the book, I describe that's kind of one way, and I call it an identity of possession in the sense that it's it's an identity you kind of collect and protect and defend and display to the world. This is why you should give me your attention. Um, but but Jesus, this eccentric identity is an identity that isn't possessed or owned, achieved work for earn um, but it's an identity that he receives <coughs> at his baptism um, as a gift at the start of his ministry he's done nothing at this point he's done nothing but at the start of his ministry the spirit falls upon him and gives him his identity which is you are beloved. And he receives that identity. And, and, uh, and that's the eccentric identity. It's not an identity I possess. It's an identity that I, I it's a posture that, what, that one has received. Uh, and, and therefore, it puts him in a very different psychological relationship with everybody else in the world. Because this isn't an identity he has to earn. He doesn't, he's not, he never finds himself in any sort of rivalrous, competitive relationship with any other human being. There's nothing let me say, President, there's nothing that you could do in Jesus' presence uh, 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 in Jesus' presence that would diminish Jesus. In ways that I might be able to diminish you. I could, you know, name drop or casually mention how our church is growing. You know what I mean? Like, there's ways I could we can diminish each other. But there's Jesus didn't stand in that sort of rivalrous relationship with anybody because he had already received an identity from his father. And so I think Jesus had, let me phrase it psychologically, Jesus had achieved a way of achieving self-esteem non-violently. Let me phrase it that way. He achieved a way of achieving a sense of identity that put him in a non-rivalrous relationship he was never going to lose in an interaction, neither would he ever try to win. And, and so therefore I think he was um, like the first peaceful person that walked the planet. And I think it's because of, of that posture, that eccentric posture of receiving oneself. So the practical side of the Holy Spirit for me is about the cultivation of this eccentric posture. Um, and, 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 it, and it links prayer and worship and, and, and even what I was talking about today about kindness because it keeps orienting you to a receptive stance towards your life. Um, another way to describe it is um, you receive yourself as gift. You experience it as such. 
another phrase from David Kelsey that I use in the slavery of death is this. So what would be the sign of this? The sign of that you you have achieved this posture. You've cultivated it. And he describes what's called doxological gratitude, receiving your identity as beloved in the spirit, and is characterized by doxological gratitude. It's 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 doxological in that it's an act of worship, and I think worship is. Too, twofold here. There's a destructive aspect to worship, right? There is a renunciation of the idols that we carry into this, to this space, right? There is, a, there is a no to worship, to the gods. Um, or is the language of Paul like, here's, here's all the things, here's the ways I used to achieve my heroic identity. I now consider them all trash. That's the, that's the negative, that's the destructive aspect of worship. It destroys some things like but the positive side is then the reception as Jesus experiences the reception of the self as beloved or as I like to tell my students worship is how we re-experience Jesus's baptism when in worship we are re-experiencing Jesus's baptism we are adopting a posture where we are given an identity of who we are in the spirit, which is beloved. And, you know, for neurotic creatures like us, you're about to go back out into the world of shame and competition. So it's, it's a fragile business. That's why you gotta, you know, worship is, worship is kind of like doing the dishes. You just gotta keep, <laughs> you gotta keep doing it. You know, you can't just worship once and like, I'm good. You, know, you gotta keep revisiting this over and over. Um, uh, again, and so, and, and, and so I also, and the other thing I want to say about this, um, and then we can keep talking, and we're keeping it open for questions, but my last point is, is that I, I, what I also like about this idea of receiving one's identity as a gift, right, as the spirit falls upon us and gives you who you are, um, that, uh, that posture can be cultivated in lots of different kinds of ways, and sometimes I see my churches um, on that enchanted, disenchanted divide is I often see this kind of tension in my churches between the contemplatives and the charismatics. Mm-hmm. Have you guys seen this tension? Mm-hmm. You know, the, charism- the contemplatives are quiet and God comes to them in the silence and they like those kind of silent <coughs> retreats. They often tend to be kind of introverts too. Um, and then there's the charismatics. Those are my friends. They're waving the <laughs> prayer flags and they're physically moving around the space and and what I like about both those postures, the charismatic or the contemplative, they're both doing the same thing. They're both opening the self up in a posture. And that's, you know, that's you out in the desert, you know, on your silent retreat, you're opening that self up for God to to come, to receive the gift or your you know, you're a charismatic waiting for that to fall upon you. Um, and, and so I found in that vision of Jesus' <coughs> baptism a way to embrace both of those and not to pit them against each other. They're so often pitted against each other. One is better than the other. Um, one is spirit-filled and one's not. Um, and so this helps me explain prayer. I think prayer is that posture when we kneel and open our hands. Another way I like to explain it to my students is that there's two fundamental postures to achieving your self-esteem. This is one <coughs> posture. Grab and take a hold of it and don't let it go. Or this. <coughs> this 
posture. Two kinds of people in the world, those who go through life like this, and those who go through life like this. And this is, I think, the spirit receptive posture of prayer and of worship. Um, so to me, that kind of ties together a lot to pieces of praxis that seem disconnected. Um, uh, <coughs> worship isn't about ginning up excitement. It is about cultivation of eccentric identity. Thoughts about that? We have a couple minutes. Yeah. Um, it occurred to me uh, both of us have um, kind of landed on um, it becomes visible in a nonviolent way of life. Whether yeah. it's receiving your life as a gift, not in competition with others, or if it's maintaining peace through the spirit rather than peace through force or violence or um, um, that way. And that reminds me of Romans 5. That um, the love of Christ, which is while we were enemies, Christ died for us. Um, that love has been poured into our hearts, Paul says, by the Holy Spirit. Um, so you get no Holy Spirit cred if you love your friend or if you love your family member, or it Jesus says in Luke, even the pagans do that. You get Holy Spirit cred if you love enemies. That doesn't mean like them. That just means you do what's best for them. You know? Um, so, um, you know, again, uh, Richard talked about this in his session today, uh, earlier today. You know, this kind of attentiveness to kindness, to uh, openness to the other, even the other that we would rather not invite into our lives, is the movement of the Spirit in our lives. And um, um, like, I feel like I want to say this, like, like tongues, miracles, all that, yes, whatever, yes, now and forever, yes, whatever, yes, the Spirit of God, yes, rejoice, in the spirit wherever you find the spirit but deep down the spirit of god is for the mission of god which is always breaking down barriers in ways that we don't resort to violence or coercion or right and now we know we're in that kind of sweet spot of the work that Spirit is doing in the world. I know uh, I, I loved Rick's sermon last night, Spirit as um, Comforter, but um, I think an image equally prominent in Scripture is Spirit as Groaner, 
the spirit as troubler, uh, the spirit who won't let you rest, who won't let you sleep at night because there's the work of peace still undone, you know, that hasn't been accomplished either in your life or in the world. Or, and if you find yourself there, then you know you're with the Spirit of God, right? So name it, give thanks for it, acknowledge it, and um, allow the Spirit then to become a person in your life that you recognize and acknowledge. Like, well, okay, let me ask you all this about, like, what would you say, what's your take on the fruit of the Spirit? It's, Given what you just said. It's good. Because to me, I would say, one of the things I would say is if you're trying to discern the spirit, you to going back to my earlier talk, is yeah. that you would say these people are kinder, gentler, right. they keep their promises, right. they're good, they're you know right. like like those th th it, those are the those are the those are the dashboard indicators of God is doing something. And they're all communal. You know, right. you think yeah, of the uh, fruit of the spirit. They're not private. There are things that happen between people, right? And um, both Velker and um, Pannenberg and I think Moma, no Jensen. I'm checking my theology guy in the back of the room there. Um, talk about the spirit as a force field that we don't control or direct but we can find ourselves drawn into and uh, then you just hang on right um, but it's typically again um, around um, issues of bringing Wholeness and healing where once there was fragmentation and division. Mm -hmm. Creating new solidarities where there was hatred and bitterness. And this is the reconciling work of God in the world. And spirit, spirit's not just a, um, a uh, kind of set of conditions we can create, you know, by our own attentiveness or willfulness. This, although that can happen, the Spirit can occupy the space we leave for the Spirit in our lives. Does that make sense? But the Spirit is also acting independently of us, drawing us into situations we would not otherwise choose for the sake of making peace, right? So let this be our benediction this evening. May you stand in the waters of the River Jordan as the Spirit hovers over you and tells you that you are loved. May you be sent to proclaim the kingdom of God as a person of peace and shalom for a very rich Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.